You are listening to the podcast of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. CBMW exists to promote the Bible's teaching on men, women, and marriage. Learn more at cbmw.org. The Danvers Statement summarizes the need for the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and it serves as an overview of our core beliefs. This statement was prepared by evangelical leaders at a CBMW meeting in Danvers, Massachusetts in December of 1987. In this podcast series, we are walking through the Danvers Statement line by line as we discuss the statement's biblical basis and ethical implications. I'm Colin Smothers, Executive Director of CBMW. And my name is Denny Burke. I'm the President of CBMW. And on this episode, we are continuing to look at the affirmations of the Danvers Statement, and we now come to the third affirmation, which says this, Adam's headship in marriage was established by God before the fall and was not a result of sin. And then there's these cross-references, Genesis 2, 16 through 18, Genesis 2, 21 through 24, Genesis 3, 1 through 13, and 1 Corinthians 11, 7 through 9. Denny, how about you help us unpack this affirmation? Well, first thing to understand when we're thinking about what's being affirmed here is that it's a direct response to um, egalitarian arguments about what the text says and what it means. And so a lot of egalitarians make the claim that Adam's headship, his responsibility to lead in the first marriage, didn't come about until until after sin came into the world. Uh, Before that, it's just total equality. So I'll give you an example. Uh, There's a commentator named Richard Hess uh, who wrote on Genesis 3. He said this, He says, quote, there is neither explicit nor implicit mention of any authority or leadership role of the man over the woman, except as the sad result of their sin in the fall and their ensuing judgments. Even then, such hierarchy is not presented as an ideal, but rather as a reality of human history like that of the weeds that spring from the earth, end quote. So Richard Hess holds that, you know, male headship, male leadership, this idea is really like weeds that are growing up. And weeds are something that you pull up and that you get rid of. And he's making that argument because in Genesis 3, after sin has come into the world, um, what does it say? It says in Genesis 3.16, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And so egalitarians read that and they go, okay, that's the first indication of headship or of any kind of a leadership role for anyone in the, in, in the first marriage. Therefore, headship is a, is a result of the fall, and it's among the things that Jesus came to redeem us from. It's the things, one of the things that he's going to obliterate with his coming kingdom, which is essentially egalitarian. So when you're looking at affirmation number three, you're seeing a direct answer to that claim and an attempt to root it in what uh, the Bible actually says in the book of Genesis. And one thing we could agree with these egalitarian critics uh, is or or about would be, yes, we want to live in a Genesis 1 and 2 world, and we want to uh, participate in what God is doing in rolling back the the curses in, in his work in redemption. Where we disagree is putting the Adamic headship or male headship in the category of Genesis 3 post-fall and not in the Genesis 1 and 2 foundational creation order. Yeah, and we'll say this, we would all agree that after the fall, headship gets corrupted by sin. Okay, so everybody agrees with that, and we can look through human history, 
we can look in our own lives and we can see where we're not doing what's right, okay? Um, in other words, we're sinful and we mess up, but where our difference is, is that we, complementarians, we don't think that headship is, the, is, is any part of what's wrong. What's wrong is just our sin. Egalitarians don't agree with that. Egalitarians say headship itself is a part of the problem and it has to be done away with. And so, you know, our answer to that has been that, well, the egalitarians are really misreading the Bible here because you don't have to go to Genesis 3 in verse 15, or excuse me, verse 16, to find headship. There are already indications that Adam and Eve are relating to one another in a certain way and have certain callings on their lives in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. Now, admittedly, we don't find a a text in Genesis 1 and 2 that says Adam is the head of Eve. Instead, we find these textual clues, right? So what what are some of those textual clues? Well, the first thing I, I would want to point readers to is or listeners to is just to realize um, this is the way the New Testament writers are reading the Old Testament. Okay. They're reading the Old Testament in such a way as to see headship before sin comes into the world. So I'll come to those texts in just a second. But even if you're just looking at Genesis 1 and 2, there are indications that are clearly there showing us that God intends for this headship relationship to be real, headship and helpership uh, to be um, to be accurate here. So uh, first of all, it's the order of creation. Um, God creates Adam before he creates Eve. Now, in the modern world, that doesn't mean much of anything to us because in the modern world, we have egalitarian notions such that birth order doesn't necessarily mean anything. That may be the case in the modern world. That's not the case in the biblical world. It's certainly not the case in the world of the book of Genesis. Anybody who reads the book of Genesis understands that throughout the book, birth order matters in terms of leadership. Um, the, the word that we use to refer to this is called primogenitor, right? There's a, there are certain privileges and responsibilities that come to the firstborn. That's primogenitor. And in the book of Genesis, um, the two, two big things that come with being the firstborn is, number one, you get a double portion of the blessing, And then number two, you have the responsibility of leadership. And so whenever you see that pattern of primogenitor interrupted, Genesis is having to correct, I mean, explain why. So for example, um, we remember Jacob and Esau. Now Esau is the older brother, should have received the double portion of the blessing, should have received the responsibility of leadership and all the rest. But what do we see happens there? Well, we get a whole story of Jacob and Esau of God's electing love towards the younger so that the older is going to serve the younger. We have to have that explained. Then we go to Jacob's sons. And so we would expect that of Jacob's 12 sons, Reuben would be the leader. Well, guess what? Reuben is the leader. In fact, he's the one who's sort of interceding for Joseph and, and, and leading his brother, uh, leading his brothers at that point. But Reuben ends up going into his father's concubine. And then the second uh, two sons, Simeon and Levi, end up doing this disgraceful thing with Shechem. And so by the time you get to Genesis 50, Jacob is explaining why primogenitor, the responsibility of leadership, is not going to fall on Reuben and Simeon and Levi. It's because they disqualified themselves. And then finally, Jacob explains, the scepter will not depart from Judah. 
The ruler's staff will not pass from between his feet. And so you've got all, all everything that I just described to you is Genesis dealing with primogenitor. And why is it that Judah, the fourth child, is now taking on the responsibilities? Because the first three disqualified themselves in God's providence and sovereignty. That was the case. So what I'm trying to illustrate here is that primogenitor is all through the book. So when you're looking at Genesis 2, and you see that Adam is formed first, and then Eve is made from Adam, any of the ancient writers, the ancient readers reading this understood that to be significant because the one who is born first has the primary responsibility for leadership. And in this first marriage, this then becomes paradigmatic in the order of creation. And that's why when you get to the New Testament, you'll see Paul making a big deal out of this. Uh, it's unambiguous that Paul is reading the text this way, that it's significant that Adam came first and then Eve. He says in 1 Timothy 2, I don't allow woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Why? For Adam was formed first and then Eve. He says a similar thing in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. He, he refers to the fact that it was not man who came from the woman, but woman who came from the man. The man came first, and Paul uses that to ground his instructions about headship in the church's worship service in 1 Corinthians 11. So all of that to say is that if you're reading Genesis correctly, and as it was originally intended, as the original readers would have received it, the fact that Adam was made first and then Eve is significant because it indicates he's the head in that relationship. This is a point that I try to drive home anytime I'm teaching Genesis, is God's creation is not arbitrary, but God's world is going to uphold and comport with God's word. So God's going to give command that is in keeping with the way that he made the universe. And, you know, one thought experiment I sometimes present is God God could have made Adam and Eve at the exact same time, in the exact same way, which would teach us about potentially what how they should function, etc. He doesn't do that. He does, in Genesis 2, very clearly make that man first, and then the woman, and then Paul clues in on to that exact detail and says, because of that, we're going to live accordingly. Absolutely. So the order of creation is is the foundation of this. And that sequencing of Adam being made first and then Eve, the apostles pick up on that and recognize it as significant for grounding a headship relationship in the first marriage and properly and supposed to be in all marriages that follow. So primogenitor, text clue number one, Adam created first, then Eve. Are there any other clues here about Yeah, there, there, are, sev there are several other things here in Genesis 1 through 2, especially Genesis 2. The second one is the order of accountability. So when you're reading in Genesis 2, before Eve is created, God gives a command to Adam. It says in Genesis 2.15, Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it, which a part of that responsibility means, yes, he's supposed to cultivate it, make it grow, but then keep it. I think a part of that is guarding it, protection. That assignment is given to the man before Eve even comes onto the scene. And then God says, the Lord God commanded the man in verse 16, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it from it, you shall surely die. So God gives a responsibility to the man to protect the garden. And then he gives a particular command about what they can eat and can't eat. Eve's not even created that created yet. Well, she's created next 
in uh, verses 18 and following, and presumably receives the command because she wasn't there when God gave the command to Adam. So Adam gives the command to her, and then she is the one who's tempted by the devil. And when she's tempted, she ends up, she sees that the fruit is good, desirable. She eats, she falls. Well, what happens though, when God comes to confront the man and the woman, who does he come to first? Comes looking for Adam. He comes looking for Adam. He's holding Adam accountable for what happened in the garden. And I think it's just the entailment of chapter two in verse six, in verse 15, where he was supposed to be protecting the garden, but he wasn't protecting the garden. He was, there's a serpent crawling in there and it, deceiving his wife. And it says that when she um, turned to give him the fruit, she turns to her husband who was with her. So he was there just letting all of this happening, just letting all of this happen. So there seems to be an, an order of accountability that God comes to Adam first to confront him. He doesn't go to Eve first. So order of creation, order of accountability, anything else in Genesis 1 and 2? Well, it's also significant that um, when God creates the woman, he calls her an Azor. Uh, it's translated often in our English versions as a helper, right? So she's an Azor, and uh, uh, all a helper is is somebody who comes along side someone and helps them and serves them in some task that's given to them. Now, a lot of egalitarians will say at this point, well, wait a minute. Sometimes God is called an Azor, and he's not subordinate to to, to anyone, because you know, and since God's called an Azor, this can't be the case. Well, actually, the word Azor is used in all different kinds of contexts, and sometimes, yes, it refers to God, uh, but then also Azor is, is used to refer to people who are in a subordinate position, who are following the leadership of somebody else. For example, in First Chronicles chapter 12, in verse 1, there's a direct allusion to David's mighty men coming alongside to help him. Well, he was leading them. And so really context defines whether or not helper has an orientation towards leadership or not. And what we're arguing is that in this context, helper does have an uh, an, an orientation towards leadership. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, we have New Testament commentary on this. Now, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, the man wasn't made for the woman, but the woman was made for the man. In other words, he's recognizing the helper relationship as oriented towards a head, one who's leading. And so if Paul's reading the text that way, we need to be reading the text that way. So helper, um, it is designating a role for the woman that's not interchangeable with the man's, but it is to come alongside him and to support his, his leadership in that relationship. I think that's important to mention context here. This case is cumulative. It's not like we're hanging everything on just one word. This is read in the context of Genesis 1 and 2, in the context of the other, the other things that we've already highlighted, the creation order, uh, order of accountability. And here's another one, the fact that she's called Azer, Adam is not called the Azer. Well, the New Testament, the apostles in the New Testament are giving us the authoritative in- interpretation of all this, and they're reading this as significant. You know, Paul doesn't even use the word helper. He just says the woman was made for the man and the man was not made for the woman. But hes that's what he's commenting on, was the fact that she was the helper to him in his headship. That's right. Uh, what about the naming, the fact that Adam uh, ends up naming Eve, gives her her personal name, but also names her kind, woman? Well, 
that's the other thing. The original readers would have seen significance in the fact that in Genesis 2, before their sin in the world, Adam is the one naming Eve. So after God fashions um, Eve from his side, Adam responds with poetry. He says, this now is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man, which is she shall be called Isha because she was taken from Ish. And so her name is derived from the, the name for the man. And at the end of the poem, Adam names Eve. Um, Adam would name her, and that Adam would name her is significant because the one who names is the one who who leads. And you see this already. Adam was naming all of the animals, right? He was exercising dominion through doing that. And it's the same kind of thing happening when he he names Eve. And so when Adam called her woman and later Eve in chapter 3 and verse 20, he was exerting a leadership role that God gave to him alone. So that's the fourth textual detail. Any others you want to highlight? Um, one more that, that I would bring up that I think is significant and that sometimes is missed. But if you look in chapter 3 at the order of Satan's temptation, um, the serpent's attack represents a subversion of God's pattern of leadership. So in a kind of a indirect way, you can see what the original order is by the order, the disorder that he brings, okay? And so what you see in Genesis 2 is that God creates the man and commands the man. The man is then the source for the woman being made from his side, and then the man speaks to the woman. And then the man and the woman are supposed to rule on God's behalf over the beasts of the field. They're supposed to rule over it. They're given dominion over everything. So it's God, man, woman, and then beasts of the field underneath all of them. And so that's the order. When you look at Satan's temptation in chapter 3, how does what happens to the order? It gets inverted, turned completely upside down. So instead of God being at the top, leading the man, the man leading the woman, and both of them ruling over the beast of the field, you've got a beast of the field, the serpent, coming and speaking to the woman, and then the woman comes and speaks to the man, and then both of them evade God, and they're hiding in the garden. And so even in the order of, of, of Satan's temptation, you can see it's a subversion of the original order, which was God, husband, wife, ruling over the, the beast of the field. So it, it, in its very nature, is itself a disordering. Yeah, it's a disordering of what the original order was. One final textual detail I sometimes point out is, uh, generally speaking, Genesis 1, male and female created in the image of God. We talked about that in previous episodes. Um, that roots a fundamental male-female equality. So th- there's kind of this emphasis on equality in Genesis 1, and then there's this emphasis on complementarity in, in Genesis 2. Although in both chapters you have... De- overlapping details. So clearly, you know, the, the woman being created uh, as a help, help meet suitable, uh, this idea of being suitable, there's this kind of side-by-sideness that um, she meets his needs in a way that no other creature in creation can, can do. But in Genesis 1, and this is harder to see in English, but in, in the original Hebrew, when God says he's going to create man, that word for man literally is Adam. And so in that sense, mankind is named after the head, the, the yeah, Adam. And this, right. and this plays into, you know, later biblical theology when we have Adamic headship. Uh, you know, Paul talks about this in, for instance, Romans 5, that um, you need to kind of get, under, get, get out from under your covenantal head, Adam, and have your covenantal head be 
Christ. And if you if you miss Adam's headship in Genesis one and two, uh, I think that that puts a, a dangerous trajectory on potentially missing what Paul's doing even in Romans five with Christ's headship. Romans five is another confirmation of this order and the order of accountability because when you look at Romans five, who is it according to Paul's writings that is held responsible for the first sin. Mm-hmm. It's Adam. It traces back to, to to Adam. So it's another confirmation of all of this. And so really, you know, Article 3 is absolutely fundamental for the Danvers Statement. Adam's, this is what it says, Adam's headship in marriage was established by God before the fall and was not a result of sin. That is so important for everything else that we believe because if you hold that headship is rooted in the fallen nature, then of course Christ's redemption would be here to remove that. But that's not the case. Um, Grace is going to perfect nature, and a part of nature is this notion of headship. Resources like the CBMW podcast are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider giving at cbmw.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening.